you cannot take a neutral position on Jesus. You either accept Him as King or reject Him. The Bible presents this as the great divide. Anyone confronted with Jesus has to make a decision. There really is only two ways to live, as Philip Jensen writes. You either live with Jesus as your king, or you are king of your own life. In fact, that's a great way to summarize humanity. Either humanity is under the rule of Christ as king, or humanity is under its own rule as king. Of course, we see this picture depicted clearest in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God, they they chose to live life their way. God had told them some specific guidelines Not because God was mean or was keeping them from their best life, but He knew what was best for them. But just like all of us, they chose to live life their way rather than God's way. And friends, this is what the Bible means when it uses the word sin. So if you're not a Christian here this morning and you're not accustomed to hearing some of the words you heard this morning like the word sin... What we mean isn't that we're as bad as we could be. That's true. We could be far worse. It means that our life is characterized by this instinct. That we think we know what's best. We know how to live our life. We know what we want. And the culture around us, the world around us, just sort of, it it fuels like gasoline on a fire those desires in us. In other words, the world around us helps us and aids us every day by telling us that what matters most is what I think or how I want to live. In fact, many of you here today might be thinking that, hey, I've done a pretty good job with my life so far. Yes, others around have kind of made it a big mess, but, but I myself, well, I've, I've Steady the ship well. Or perhaps you're here this morning and your conclusion is, my life is pretty messed up. I've not done a great job. Friends, as we consider Jesus this morning as King, my hope, whether you're a Christian or not, will be confronted afresh with the question, is if Jesus is King, is He King of your life? What does it look like for Jesus to be king? We sing songs, we, we call him King Jesus, but what does that look like practically in everyday life? You see, Jesus is always a threat to personal autonomy and self-freedom. Jesus doesn't enter into our lives and sort of say, hey, you can keep living life your way and everything will turn out well. Some of you guys know that Warren Buffett, he made a lot of money, He made a lot of money by taking over defunct businesses, you know, ones that were just a hot mess and, you know, they'd kind of been run into the ground. Now think for a minute, when Warren Buffett took over these businesses, he didn't leave the CEO of the business that had run it into the ground. No, he said, I'm going to put new leadership over these businesses. 
You don't get to keep running the business that you ran into the ground. But in the same way, Jesus doesn't come into your life and say, hey, I'm going to let you keep running things, and I'll just be over here to be your life coach and to help you get through troubling times. No, friend, you see, when Jesus enters in your life, it is as he said, you have to take up your cross. You have to deny yourself, and you have to follow him. Or as Mark begins his gospel, as Jesus begins his ministry, he says, behold, or he declares, the kingdom of God has come, repent and believe. You see, when you're confronted with Jesus, it demands a response. You either accept it or you reject it. In fact, you have not shared the gospel or heard the gospel unless it has demanded a response from you, either of its acceptance or of its outright rejection. Friends, this morning we're going to think about this particular theme that Jesus is the Christ King. He is the long-awaited King. I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 2 this morning as we continue this short study over the last three weeks considering the advent of Christ. Advent from the Latin adventus, which means coming. We're thinking about the coming of Christ. The Bible tells us of two comings of Jesus. Jesus comes first as Savior and second as judge. And as Christians, we, are, we can't wait for him to come as judge, as the one who will finally and fully set all things right. But this morning, we're thinking about his first coming. And we learned two weeks ago, through that genealogy that Matthew begins his gospel with, that Jesus is the legitimate heir to the throne of David. That he is not only through his mother, as Luke portrays, but also through his adoptive father, he has a legitimate claim to David's throne. But more than that, we also learn that Jesus is a son of Abraham. In other words, he is fully Jewish. He is a full Israelite. He His bloodline is pure, if you will. And he is a descendant of Abraham. He is the promised one whom God had given to the nation of Israel. And last week we considered the the circumstances centered around his conception. You know, interestingly enough, Matthew doesn't record the birth of Jesus. He only records the conception and what happened afterwards. Luke is the one that provides the more vivid detail, and that's because Luke is relying on Mary for his information, where Matthew here is relying on perhaps Jewish Joseph, the father of Jesus, and his story. As we consider this Christ child this morning, let's ask God that he would open our minds to see and understand. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, And he acquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, and are you not by no means least among the rulers of Judah? 
For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he said to them, and he sent them rather to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Friends, as we consider this text this morning, this is the main idea I believe that Matthew is driving at as he records this narrative. It is this, that Jesus Christ is the true shepherd and true ruler over God's people. This passage is to teach us that Jesus is the true king of Israel. And we really see two kings presented in our text this morning, don't we? We see King Herod in his kingdom. We see his throne being threatened by this little baby. And he gets all worried about it. But we also see that Jesus is the true shepherd, the one who, who is long awaited this union between this shepherd who would reign and rule over God's people. And so this morning, I believe the purpose of this, this passage is to, is to invite us, along with the wise men, to worship Jesus as king, as the one who's come to reign and rule over our lives. I want to notice just a number of things in the text before we sort of go through an outline. I found this proved helpful, I hope, last week. We just walk through the text, just observe a number of things and then see how Matthew is, is leading us to these particular conclusions. Now we're told, of course as I just indicated, that there's no birth narrative. Now if we were to continue to read on, we'll find that through the context it tells us that most likely Jesus is around the age of two years old. And we believe that he's around two years of age because Herod eventually is going to kill all the children in Bethlehem two years and younger. And this is, therefore, to lead us to believe that Jesus is around that age. And so, despite what your manger scene at home might look like, there are no wise men there. But we are told that these wise men, or for our old King James readers, these magi, this is where we get the word magician from, that these wise men, these were noblemen, they weren't kings, despite what the song might think, lead us to believe. They, they were men, they were astrologers, they were men who considered the stars, they were noblemen, they were men of great influence in their society. We're told that they came from the east, so perhaps from Babylon, from Persia, from some region there to the east of Israel, and they've come because they've studied Hebrew Scripture. And they believe that the Christ has come because this star has arisen in the sky. You see, in the book of Numbers, we are told this prophecy of this star that would arise and lead God's people to their king. It would be a sign, just as in the wilderness, the, 
the Shekinah glory of God, the, the cloud in the mornings, in the daytime, and the fire by night led God's people to the promised land. So a star would arise in the sky and lead God's people to their true king. And so these wise men come, and of course, like any wise man would do, if you're looking for a king, you're going to go to the palace where the king lives, and there maybe find the, the child that was born to the king. And so they turn up there, and they say, hey, King Herod, where is the child? Now, of course, King Herod is no God-fearer. He has little to do with God. He isn't really a Jew at all. He's sort of a puppet king. Of course, Rome rules over there, and they've set Herod up there to rule. He was a tyrant of a man. He was a wicked man. Though he had done great things for the nation of Israel, he had built the, the temple that they knew, they, they worshipped in, he was a crazy man. In fact, he was so afraid of losing his little puppet kingdom that he had his wife killed and a number of his sons who threatened his throne. And so it's no surprise to see there at the end of chapter 2, Herod declaring the death of any child that was there in Israel. This Jesus that these wise men were reporting were a, a direct threat to his throne. And so, wisely enough, he says, hey, hey, when you find the child, can you, can you report back to me where this child has come? And so these wise men have come to search Herod inquires about the Christ child, and he turns to the religious experts, the, the ones who are established here in Israel. Notice what they write there in verse 4. Matthew records, "...and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him this, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet." And here they quote Micah 5.2. A direct quotation from Micah's prophecy. And they learn that, hey, we need to narrow our search down. We don't need to go to all the surrounding countryside, but we can go directly to Bethlehem. And of course, for an Israelite, this would have come with great significance. Bethlehem was the town of David. Bethlehem was the place where David grew up in the streets. It was, the, it was a place they would have known that the Christ would have come from as a descendant of David. Of course, if you're a reader of Scripture, you know that Luke records for us and tells us that they had gathered there because of a census and perhaps even living there for some time. And so, Herod, hearing this news, summons the Christ, or summons the, the wise men to go to, to Bethlehem and to report back, hey, tell me what's happened so I can come and worship. Of course, Herod has no desire to worship Jesus. All he wants to do is kill him. And as the story unfolded, we saw that they did just as they said they would, but they did not return home. Interestingly enough, we see their behavior here. Look with me, if you will, at verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Interestingly enough, that Matthew doesn't say that they worshipped them, but him. These men only worshipped Jesus. They didn't see Mary as an elevated person that one should worship to. But they did see that he was the Christ, this long-awaited king who had come. Well, what are we to make of this star that led them? 
what are we to make? Is this some sort of astrology? Is this they just reading the stars in the sky? Or was this a miraculous star that led? You know, some people find this a stumbling block. How is it that a star could lead them? That's so impossible. Friend, let me just reconcile in this way as Christians. We affirm the virgin birth. We affirm that a, a virgin had a baby. Like, if we can affirm that, then we can affirm that our God can take a star and create it and do with whatever he wants with it. And so we affirm that, no, this wasn't some comet flying through the sky or some anomaly that happened. No, this is a God who was orchestrating the events of his own son's birth. This is a God who is sovereignly reigning over the cosmos in order to bring about his purposes. So as we think about this passage this morning, I think this passage leads us to worship Christ in three ways. Number one, we are invited to worship Christ as king. Look again at this prophecy. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means the least among the kings or rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler or a king who will shepherd my people Israel. When the Magi or the wise men arrived, they were looking for the Christ child who was born King of the Jews. Jesus, when He died on Calvary's cross, died as King of the Jews. It is a fitting bookend, isn't it, to this Gospel? The one who came, Jesus is making explicit claims to being a King And these wise men come and worship him as king. Friend, what does this all mean? Well, friend, it means that Jesus is the one who rules over a kingdom. A king has a kingdom. And in order to have a kingdom, you have to have people in that kingdom. I mean, a king, a man who sets himself up on a throne but has no one to follow, we would say he's not a king. You have to have people to have be, be a king. You have to have a geographic location. But, but this is not bound by geography. No, friends, this is a kingdom that is eternal. It's not bound by time and space. And so this morning, those who have kneeled to King Jesus, well, they are ushered into a kingdom that's an eternal kingdom. That's not bound by uh, geography, American or European or Western. It is a kingdom that is eternal. If he is a king, that means that he rules sovereignly over our lives. To come to Jesus as king means to bow our will to his will. Of course, a king, a sovereign, is one who provides protection for his people. One who provides an army in order to keep its people safe, its boundaries secure. A king is one who provides materialism to its people, Not so that they might enjoy things in and of themselves, but that they might be cared for. A king makes sure its peoples are well provided for. And friend, in this way, Jesus is king in our life. He not only sovereignly rules over our lives, but he provides protection and care for us. This is the ministry that Christ has. As Jesus reminds his disciples later that they should not fear 
because he is one who's overcome the world as king. But not only is Jesus displayed as king here in this text, we also see that we are to worship Christ as shepherd. Notice here the connection there in that prophecy from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. For you shall come as ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. David, who was the great king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, of course he had a job before he was king. He was a shepherd of sheep. This was a lowly task, not one that a nobleman would do. It was akin to slave-type work, but it was an essential job for the nation of Israel. It was an important income there. A land flowing with milk and honey was an indication of a land that had ample resources for their flocks. That God was providing milk from these animals that God was raising up. And this union here, we see this picture, this union of not only a king who would rule as a tyrant over his people, but one who would come and rule as a lowly shepherd, a gentle shepherd. Of course, we see that through David's writings in the Psalms, and particularly through Psalm 23, the most famous psalm in all your, your Bible, the one that perhaps you know well, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God was the the shepherd who was ruling over his people through his king, David. But God promised, as we heard earlier there in 2 Samuel, that he was raising up another shepherd, a greater shepherd. Or as Ezekiel prophesied in Ezekiel 34, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And it's no surprise then when Jesus begins his ministry, as he's teaching there throughout Israel, he says, I am the good shepherd. This is just poised with theological meaning. He is declaring himself to be the shepherd king that God had promised to his people. And isn't it a wonderful truth to know that Jesus is a good shepherd? Of course, the nation of Israel had... number of bad kings, bad shepherds, that would often lead the people into sin and idolatry and ultimately into exile, but that God was raising up a new king who would not lead the people astray. I mean, you think about the presidents here in our own country that we've seen over the last hundred plus years. Boy, there's been some good ones and then there's been some real bad ones. There's been some that have led us in in certain paths that have been to our ill, and there's been others that have led us to our blessing. It's a wonderful truth to know that Jesus is a king who leads us well. He is a good shepherd. He will never lead you into pasture that he does not desire you to be in. It is a reminder that this shepherd king is sovereign. He gets to pick what pastures we graze in. And sometimes we graze in barren land. Sometimes we graze because the shepherd has taken us into really hard and difficult roads. But that doesn't mean he's not good. No, he understands our needs more than we do. He understands our lives and our pains and our sorrows. He is a good shepherd. And just like a shepherd mends his sheep and cares for them, he cares for us. 
In this season, for you, it may be a season of joy and rejoicing. But for others, it may be a season of dark and deep clouds. Ones that seem to never blow away. It is good to know that whether we are on green pasture or in barren land, our shepherd is still good and he has led us to this place. And he will lead us through. Though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. No matter where we are, whether we're in the desert or in the lush green lands, God is with us. That is what we celebrate in the Christmas season. That that Christ has has not left us far off, but has drawn near to us. In all of our sin and weakness, the Good Shepherd has come. And so we ought to worship Him as King, follow Him as Shepherd, and worship Him as God. The point cannot be missed. These wise men aren't just coming to pay homage to a monarch. They didn't travel you know, two months just to give some, some nice-looking gifts to this baby born in Bethlehem. A backwater town, an insignificant place. They didn't travel across the known world in order to just find some little baby born to a couple poor parents in Bethlehem. No, they came to worship God. They came to bow their knee before the eternal God. I think the implication is clear, my friends, that these men have been traveling in order to worship the eternal God of the cosmos. Matthew has been driving at this point. Even as we considered last week, you could look, a, look back if you weren't here. It's a reminder of the prophet Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, everyone in the room understood that the the baby that was crying out for its mother's milk was actually the eternal God clothed in human flesh. That the second person of the Trinity, known as God's Son or the Son of God, begotten, not made, as we affirmed earlier, from the Father before all time. This means that this Christ child was an eternal being. This was not His birthday. We are not celebrating the beginning of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. No, He has eternally coexisted with the Father, Son, and Spirit. Fully God. And fully man, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence as the Father. What those elders in Nicaea, as they went to Constantinople, is to affirm not what the church taught, but what the Bible teaches, and that is Jesus is God's eternal Son, who has eternally existed, and who will eternally exist into the future. He is forever God. He was not made God. He did not become God. He did not submit to God's will and therefore become God. He is not an angel. No, He is greater than the angels, the author of Hebrews says. He is the one to whom the angels cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He is the one we'll consider tonight in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. He is mighty God. 
Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is who He is. This is His identity. And friend, you have to reconcile whether or not He is or He isn't. You see? That's your choice. The facts are clear. The Bible does not mince words. Either either He is the great I Am or He isn't. Either we worship Him as King or we don't. Either we worship Him and submit our lives in obedience to Him, or we don't. Either He's God, or He's not. Friend, we affirm the truth that He is God. And one of the things our text makes particularly clear, that if if He is God, therefore, He is the only one who can save. Christmas reveals to us the great doctrine of, of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Which means that only God can save. We sang a hymn earlier intentionally. Not in me. Not in me. Friend, let me just encourage you, take that bulletin home, read through that again. It confronts the proud, it confronts the religious, and it confronts those who are so ashamed they feel like God could never save them. It confronts us all. No list of good works. Nothing. Not even coming this morning is enough. I gave some money today. Don't you think God's going to love me now? I mean, I'm here today. I did it. I checked the box off. Oh, I've come every week. You wretched fool. God can't save you. You've only come on Christmas. I come every day. I come 52 weeks out of the year. Surely God loves me. No, God loves you no more than the penitent sinner who cries for mercy. God is a God who saves sinners and only God can save. You can't save yourself. Your your family can't save you. No prayers can save you. Only Christ can save you through His atoning death on Calvary's cross. You see, what Jesus is doing in His life and ministry, the, we, the reason He came was to live the life that you and I should have. The, we, the reason why He comes as a human being and clothes Himself, this eternal God, clothes Himself in human flesh, is to identify with you. To be your representative. To, to live the life you should have lived in perfect obedience to the Father. And then offer up this perfect life as a sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath against your sin and my sin. He died as a, as a substitute in your place. But the Bible says he didn't stay dead. He rose again three days later to justify, to vindicate that he accomplished what he set out to do. And so, this morning, you can only be saved from God's wrath. Your shame of sin that you feel every day as your conscience bears witness to the wreck of a life you've made can only be reconciled through Christ. Friend, there is hope this morning because the Christ has come for you on your behalf. Friend, if you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, just ask any of those around you. 
Just ask them, what does it mean to follow Christ? And they'll tell you. And they'll lead you to follow after him. The nations gathered. It is ironic, isn't it? That the people of God, when they hear the announcement that the, the Christ has been born, what, what do they say? Well, look there again. Verse 2. Excuse me, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. What a fitting response that Matthew will develop throughout the gospel. You can read more about. They responded with fear. But how do you respond? God gathered the nations there and these Gentiles came and worshipped Jesus, this royal king of the Jews, who is God incarnate, who came to shepherd his people home. In this season, let us worship Christ with joy as the wise men did. They were overwhelmed with exceeding joy. They got to worship the Christ child. And friend, you can worship King Jesus today with joy, knowing that he will not reject you. He will not despise you. Come to Jesus and he will accept you. We ought to worship him with joy and we ought to worship Christ with devotion. You know, one of the things that's depicted here in the giving of these gifts expensive gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and, and a lot to do is, I think, about nothing has been made about these. I don't think we need to read into the text something that's not there. You know, gold be given to kings and frankincense for the priestly offerings and myrrh for, for death. Perhaps, I don't think Matthew is leading us in that way. I think the clearest reading is, these are some real expensive gifts. Given in devotion to the one who is the gift from heaven. I mean, what can you really buy Jesus, right? I mean, you think about all the gifts you had to give somebody throughout your life. There have been some really hard gifts you've had to buy. What do you, what do you get that person? Surely, even in this season, you've, you've thought that. What do I get him or what do I get her? They have everything. What do you get the eternal son of God who leaves the throne of heaven and comes to What do you get? What kind of gifts? I mean, you're, you're giving them pavement, street pavement, gold, gold bar. Like, we use that in heaven to, like, pave the roads with, and you give that as a gift. No, providentially, I think God was providing for their exodus to Egypt and their return travels home. These gifts most likely would have been sold in order to finance the early years of Jesus' life. God was providentially caring for his own son, even in his infancy. But these men gave a great cost. It's like the alabaster flask, is it not? The woman who comes and anoints Jesus, giving her dowry to anoint the feet of Jesus, it is a picture of devotion. Worship is a picture of devotion. Friend, you can't come in here and sing songs and think that's worship. That's an aspect of worship, but a life lived in devotion to Christ, no, that's worship. If you want to know perhaps what you worship, just look at your bank statement. Look through what you spend your money on, and I bet you'll find what you worship. But also in our text, we're led not only to joy and devotion, but we're to worship Christ with obedience. These wise men obeyed the Lord. Their act of worship was to 
to travel two years to find this Christ child, to, to find the one born king of the Jews. And even in the dream, they were warned not to go back to Herod, and they obeyed. We've seen obedience throughout, whether it be the obedience of Joseph to submit to the word of the Lord or to these wise men. To worship the Lord is to obey him. It's to submit our lives and to say, all right, I'm not in charge anymore. Jesus, you're in charge. What am I to do? And friend, that is the life of the Christian. Diligently studying the scriptures to find the will of the Lord. Not looking at stars, not looking at maps, not looking to the sage advice of this world, but looking to the Word of God and seeking to obey Him as best as we can. Friend, let me invite us this morning to worship Christ in these ways. To worship Him as King and Shepherd and God. This Christ who has come means that we live in joyful devotion and obedience to Him in a life lived for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that You would aid us in this way. As we consider Christ to be our King, may we not reject Him or push Him aside, but may we joyfully accept Him into our life and ask Him to rule and reign. Ask Him to set the course, to lay down our crown at the feet of Jesus because He is our King. Aid us, we pray, for your glory and our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.